Yale Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the World Fellows Podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows Program at Yale. My guest today is Sultan Al-Qasimi. He is a modern man of letters, an art collector, a columnist, a researcher, and he is from the United Arab Emirates. Sultan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emma. Sultan, you grew up in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates. Who and what were the main influences on your life when you were growing up? So I had uh, real-life characters and fictional characters that influenced me growing up. The real-life characters, of course, my mom and my dad are top of the list. And um, my late best friend, uh, who passed away uh, five years ago, was also a huge influence in my life. The fictional characters, I think, were all these individuals I met through the books I was reading, whether they were, um, you know, uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, whether uh, they were um, uh, Colden Holfield from The Catcher in the Rye, uh, and, of course, uh, Frodo and Bilbo Baggins. (laughs) You were a hobbit. (laughs) Hobbit, exactly. So what did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, um, I sort of... uh, I sort of thought I would always be uh, someone who would be uh, a public servant in a way or another, although that didn't end up materializing. But I felt that I, I felt like I had a higher calling where I would be useful to either a smaller community or a larger community. So during the Arab Spring, you were very active on social media and you had sort of over half a million followers on Twitter. But as we know the dreams of a better future, of new political orders based on rights and justice, were shattered. What do you think is the legacy of that period? What do you take away from it? Um, I'm very proud of uh, my minuscule role or what I did and the decisions I made in that very uh, important uh, time of the Arab world and time in my own life. And... If we, if this had to be repeated, I would do it all over again. And um, I think that there were uh, major mistakes that were made uh, across the region. And um, I feel that uh, these uh, these convulsions uh, were were not a uh, they were not a plot, but they were a um, a byproduct of. Um, decades of mismanagement and corruption that the region has seen. And this is a forewarning that if uh, youth unemployment is not tackled, that if uh, civil rights are not given, that if freedom of expression is not honored, that there is a chance that this is going to be repeated. And uh, so far we haven't had, um, I think, a serious look at these issues. As you said, uh, the dreams um, have been shattered, but I I don't see this as a you know once in a uh, once in a century event. I mean, this is something that really could occur in the next decade or two, um, and I think this this is a an, uh, this should be a, a warning to states, not just in the Middle East in the Arab world, but around the world, that that the citizens' rights should be honored. That citizens uh, also um, you know um, have uh, they have duties, but they also uh, have rights. So what's the message that you pass on to the next generation of young people in the Arab world? I think um, one thing I would say is 
we really need to believe in ourselves. I think we we shouldn't allow um, others to um, to break us down, to break our morale. Now, this could be uh, others could be, uh, you know, the 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 governments in the region or the wider world. I see there's a lot of self-flagellation going on in the region. A lot of people, um, their spirits are broken. Uh, but I think that it's always important to see the glass as half full. It's always important to build on what is um, what is available to us. The, the the truth is, yes, much of Syria has been destroyed. The truth is, yes, much of Iraq has been destroyed. And yes, much of Yemen, much of Libya, and much of so many other countries have been affected by uh, the, you know these convulsions of the past uh, almost decade now. However, if one considers uh, the state of Europe, just after World War II, the, the continent was in disarray. The, these cities that we recognize today, were, were some of them were wiped out completely, whether you think of Krakow or Warsaw or Dresden or Rotterdam. Some of them are unrecognizable. Vienna today, which is seen as a symbol of beauty in Europe, was, I think, decimated. Large parts of it, at least, were decimated. Entire uh, districts have had to be rebuilt. But where is Europe today? It's the second biggest economy in the world collectively. And and I think it is a beacon of, of tolerance, of democracy, of human rights. And yes, it has, uh, it, has, it, has, it has had a few setbacks in the last few years with the election of right-wing governments. But overall, if you think just six decades or so ago, this country, this continent was in such bad shape. However, there were visionary men and women who pulled it uh, uh, together and saw that their medium and long-term future rests on their shoulders and on them cooperating. Enemies, the Germans had three times invaded France in 75 years, but they still work together. And so in the Middle East, we have to see a way for countries that have traditionally considered each other to be enemies to find a way to build the future with each other. There must be restitution. There must be, uh, what is that word, comeuppance? But uh, there must be a future joint vision for the entire region. And that requires leadership. That is right. And there is a crisis of leadership, Emma, not just in the Arab world, in the Middle East, throughout the world. A lot of people talk about Angela Merkel, and they're a bit dismissive of her. But the woman has really provided an example at some of the worst possible times of of our generation, she has really uh, provided a beacon of hope in taking in a million refugees when other countries, including the Gulf states, have taken zero. And so we have to be mindful of good leadership and identify it and and honor this good leadership. Uh, But definitely, as you said, there is a crisis of leadership throughout the world. And people talk about the crisis in political legitimacy. How do you build up a new generation of young leaders who have legitimacy in their own societies? I think they're definitely, let's talk about the Middle East or even Africa or Asia, or the developing world or the emerging world. Um, there is no dearth of intelligent, uh, smart, ambitious, um, willing uh, young men and women. Uh, the only issue here is the opportunity. Will they be given an opportunity? It, are there any avenues for them to access 
corridors of power? Are there any opportunities for them to participate in the decision making in their countries? And unfortunately, the uh, the the answer really is uh, is not clear cut, yes or no. It it varies. In some parts of the Middle East, there's there are better uh, avenues. Uh, there is no doubt that social media, at least in the first few years of its introduction into the Middle East, allowed a greater say for people. However, it's been now used by governments to introduce a counter-narrative and the voices that were demanding, uh, not not overthrow of the government, but really, you know, reform that I think has the region's best interest at heart, uh, these voices have been silenced. Art, I know, is your passion, and you set up the Bajil Art Foundation, and paintings from your collections are shown around the world, including here at Yale and also in Tehran. For you, what is the purpose of art? I think art is... um largely a reflection of our identity in the Middle East. When when we show art, we're, it's a way of telling our story. It's a way of saying, of telling people how diverse we are within the uh, within the Arab world, within the Middle East. When the exhibition we um, we held uh, traveled to Tehran um, in 2016, we really made sure to try in as much as possible within 40 artworks to reflect a large portion of the Arab world that the Iranian neighbors of ours wouldn't really uh, you know, expect to be uh, reflected in, the, in this collection, whether they were Shiite uh, artists, whether they were Jewish artists from the Arab world, whether they were Amazigh, Berber, whether they were Turkmen, Kurds, um, and, and you know all sorts of other minorities, men as as well as women, and and I think it's really Im- important to find different avenues with which to communicate with the West and the East. The Middle East is not just oil and politics. The Middle East is so much more than that. It's food and music and cinema and architecture and art. And I know you've got a passion as well for architecture. How did you develop this interest in art and architecture? If you think about it, they're not completely separated. In fact, throughout the, throughout the history of the Middle East and the world, a lot of artists collaborated with architects and urbanists to introduce either public monuments, to introduce uh, you know, uh, uh, identity elements into, into the city. This is something that we see in Baghdad. We've seen this in Kuwait. We've seen this uh, in Cairo, Alexandria, and other cities of the, of the Middle East. Uh, and so I think it's just a mere extension. And if you are interested in, in, in art, it's very difficult to see someone sort of um, be uninterested in architecture or uninterested in music or film. I think these these issues bind us all together, not just as Middle Easterners or Arabs, but also as human beings. I mean, some people would argue that art is very much an elite pastime. You have these amazing paintings. How do you bring them to a broader audience, a non-elite audience? Well, um, in fact, yeah, art can be uh, seen as an elitist uh, um, hobby. However, uh, we have to democratize it. We have to make it available to people. We have to take it to where people uh, go rather than build these uh, giant um, 
grand, I think, museums that are, to a degree, um, you know, uh, they feel unwelcoming, they feel intimidating, I think, to some individuals. We have to make sure that the art is accessible, whether it's in smaller museums or localized museums, community museums, or online, in, in textbooks. There's so much that we can do to democratize access to art. Um, in the West, there's a lot of museums that have now uh, done away with uh, with uh, ticketing because they know that these these artworks belong to the public, and uh, and I and I feel like you know in my own country, in, for example, in Sharjah, the museums are either uh, free or they're heavily subsidized, and I think this is something that the whole world is moving towards. So what's what's your dream going forward? Well, my dream is to see, um, before my life uh, ends, is to see a, uh, a prosperous, educated, uh, empowered uh, Middle East. A Middle East that can hold its weight, not just uh, in Asia or in Africa, but across the world. A Middle East that is integrated. A Middle East where, uh, you know, oil that flows from uh, from the uh, Gulf can be exported from Syrian ports or from Lebanese ports. A Middle East in which the borders that have been put up uh, uh, between these countries are uh, uh, are taken away, these, these artificial borders that have been introduced to us 100 years ago. A Middle East in which there's a freedom of movement, of labor. A Middle East in which there's a freedom of expression. A Middle East in which democracy is not seen as an insult or a bad word. A Middle East in which corruption is minimal. I understand that we can't eliminate it, but at least we have to minimize it. A Middle East uh, uh, in which education is held uh, at the forefront of the country's ambition and not, um, you know, uh, massive trophy projects that uh, that we have seen plague the region over the past decade or two. Sultan al-Qasimi, may your dream come true. Thank you very much. Thank you, Emma.